am subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for your work in our lives. Just hearing a story of how you've changed a life, it rekindles our hearts, Lord, and love for you and how you specialize in making new creations. And we are aware that you want to make us into those that are going about in this lost world, reaching out to rescue people, to help them from the destruction to which they're heading by preaching the gospel. And, and also, Lord, you want us to be mature believers. So we know that you want to use this passage to that end to help us to be mature so that we can go out and reproduce and obey your great commission. We pray, Lord, that you would accomplish all of that this morning by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the application that's unique to his ministry that he brings to our lives. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Continuing on in this amazing book, we've been looking at these Jewish believers who have been influenced by possibly false teachers that are enticing them to go back away from the place where they're at now and go back to Judaism without having Jesus as their Messiah, to go back into the sacrificial system, to go back under the law, to also possibly venerate and worship angels and all these things that were infiltrating the early church. It's about, like I said, uh, the last few weeks, it's a, it's, it's a few years before AD 70 when the temple would be destroyed. So at this time, the sacrificial system is, is, is going strong. There's, they're making that morning and evening sacrifice there at the temple. They're, they're going to the temple to worship. They're, they're, the whole culture is steeped in Judaism, uh, wherever there's a Jewish uh, place for them to worship. And so these Jewish believers are tempted to go back because of persecution being ramped up a little bit. And so, as we've seen, as we've start, started the book in chapter 1, we've seen this writer just amazingly be able to share with these people that Jesus is better. He's better than uh, the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's, uh, he's given a better and, and superior and final revelation as we're told in chapter 1 as well. And so uh, we've seen that he's divine in chapter 1. And so uh, that's very important for us to, to keep in mind as we continue to go through the book. Now last week um, we saw that there's consequences associated with rejecting that superior revelation. He said in verses 1 through 3, you can look with me there, he, he said, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So we saw last week this incredible warning that the writer gives, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to these believers of neglecting and drifting and the consequences. Uh, of, of that decision. 
He warned them of rejecting the superior revelation and how that, that, the consequences of that is, is very significant. He said if, the, if what the angels spoke was binding and, and, and what they spoke, that those words were very binding and, and, and they saw that in the Old Testament. And if acts of disobedience and, and all these things that they were engaged in, in in the Old Testament, if God was a perfect, flawless judge in the context of their behavior, and he was, then how much more, based on the superior revelation and the final revelation that God has given through Jesus, how much more is uh, the, the, the consequences of that? It's a very serious warning. And so, uh, you know, here they could be thinking that to turn away from Christ because of persecution would actually facilitate an escape for their lives. Escape difficulty, escape hardship, escape tribulation, but in doing so, they would not escape at all. There would be no escape. There'd be a greater thing that they would experience and would have huge, massive consequences. And so this, the sobriety of this warning needs to be sensed in our lives, and, and it was in their lives, that we don't want to drift. We don't want to neglect this great salvation. He uses the word great to describe it. Great salvation. Salvation was foretold in the Old Testament through the prophets. And angels were involved in that whole, uh, the whole aspect of bringing that revelation. But now the, that the fulfillment is here, there's greater uh, accountability and greater consequences for mismanaging or being a bad steward of that greater revelation. Then we saw in verses 4 through 8, the writer helped the Jewish believers not be impressed with man. Again, they were likely being tempted to, in, in this contemplation of denying Christ by these false teachers, and they were likely painting this picture, and temptation is always a picture, a, a picture painted in our minds and in our hearts of something that's an illusion, that in reality, it's a ripoff. Satan loves to rip people off. He promises, overpromises, and underdelivers to say, that's an understatement to say that. And so here, here these teachers were probably influencing them and so forth that they would escape something if they denied him and possibly also to worship angels and to avoid persecution. But the writer explains there that uh, in those verses that man can even rule himself well, that he has dominion over this earth legally, but he's doing a horrible job at it. So basically the writer's asking the, the believers this question, can you really trust man can you really trust what man says? Are you going to listen to man now? He can't even rule himself. How many of us would be impressed with someone's life, you know, and, and, or them coming to us and saying, I want to give you advice on how to live your life well. And then, but their life's a mess. And their life's always been a mess. And you're like, I don't know if you have too much credibility to speak to me about how, how to live a, a, a wise life. And it's the same with this situation. These, these people that were influencing them, they couldn't, they couldn't be trusted because man ultimately can't be trusted. Because man is sinful and God is holy. And God's laid out the revelation so that we can trust in God. So he said to them, in the ages to come, angels won't rule. To say nothing of ruling for all e eternity. So no, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. In verse 9, he got to that, as we saw last week. Who suffered and died for us. He tasted death 
for everyone, we're told in, in the verse. And so the writers, by the Holy Spirit, you know like when, you're, when you have a child that is, is having a hard time paying attention and listen, listening to what you have to say. And sometimes as a parent, you take, them by, you take their head, you take their face on their head, and you, you put their face right in front of yours, and you speak to them very slowly, and you say it as clearly and as slowly as you can possibly say it, you need to do this, just so they don't miss it. That's what this writer is doing by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you need to look at Jesus. And the writer is confident and because he knows that the Spirit is leading him to write these things, and if he can just get their eyes on Jesus, any other thing that, would, that they could look to, as wonderful as those things are, angels, prophets, the Old Testament, all the heritage that those Jews had, would pale in comparison to the superiority of the Lord Jesus. So he wants to get their, their gaze upon him. Now this morning, as we get focused on our section today, the writer continues a theme that I didn't really touch on last week because I knew it would be developed further in our section this morning. But in verse 9, he began dealing with Jesus' humanity. And we'll see that all through the verses through the end of the chapter. He's focusing on Jesus' humanity. He focused on Jesus' divinity a lot in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, he focuses in a very significant way on Jesus' humanity. Because you have to realize there's, there's this belief system going through the, the world at this time that was called pre-Gnosticism. We covered this when we looked at Colossians. How eventually it would, it would evolve into full-blown Gnosticism where they believe that anything of the flesh is evil. And because of that, their, their, their behavior and what they did in their lives in, ter- in terms of with their body, they, they didn't believe that that really represented who they are because the, the body was evil and the spirit is is holy. But that also trickled down into what they believed about God and Jesus because they believed that God would never come in human flesh because that's sinful or flesh and physical, you know, our physical bodies are, are evil and God would never do that. And that's why we'll see when we get to 1 John, when he's dealing with this issue again, he says, anyone who teaches that Jesus didn't come in the flesh is of Antichrist. And he's the one that wrote John chapter 1 by the Spirit, who said in chapter 1 verse 14 that the, the, the Word became flesh. He didn't just stay the Spirit being, he, he, didn't, he wasn't aloof and distant from mankind. He became flesh and he tabernacled among us. Any belief system that denies that Jesus came, that God came in human flesh, is of anti-Christ. And so that is pervasive in this whole uh, culture in that time. So it's important that this writer nails down that Jesus was not just God, you know, in deity and divine, but he was also human. And, and that's very important for us to see because the, the, the uh, incarnation had to happen. For him to be the better Savior, him to be the supreme Savior, be a better Messiah, he had to be incarnate. He had to become a man. And so he's going to do something very brilliant. And I want to tell you what's coming so it'll help you because you'll be looking for it as we make our way through the verses. He's going to show how Jesus is better by showing he had, a, had to become human. And, and that, only, that only by becoming human he could suffer and die. God, God the Father can't suffer and die. He's in heaven. 
The only way that God could suffer and die is to become human. And he had to become human to suffer and die because there's things that he wants to accomplish in the lives of mankind. In other words, there are benefits to Jesus coming in human flesh. And he's going to go over these benefits. So he's going to keep coming back to how Jesus needed to become human. And then interwoven through that, sprinkled through that, he's going to be giving the benefits of Jesus coming as a man and becoming human. Now he says in verse 10 as we begin, For it was fitting for him, that is Jesus, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Notice the word fitting there in the beginning of the verse. It was fitting for him. And in one sense, we look at that and we can be kind of shocked. How could it be fitting? If there's any picture that isn't fitting, it's that God in human flesh, who is 100% holy, was on that cross. That is not fitting. That doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. We would never conjure that up in our own imagination, that God would come in human flesh. But it was fitting for God to save mankind. It was necessary. That's really what the the word implies. It was a necessity that uh, he came and, and, and accomplished what he accomplished. But notice he also says that all things are for Jesus in the verse, and also all things are by Jesus. So he's going to be talking about his incarnation and him becoming a man, but he doesn't want the writers to lose sight of the, the reality of what he reminded them of in chapter 1, that he still is divine. Jesus came and he was God when he came. Of course, he is God today, but he was God when he came, and he didn't stop being God. He just added a human nature, a perfect human nature. So he had a dual nature when he was on this earth, and he still does today. So he is God who created all things. All things were created for him, and all things were created by him. Again, what angel ever did that? Whatever angel, what angel could say that? What prophet could ever say that? None of them. Jesus is superior to all of, all of them. But it also says that he is the captain of our, of our salvation, to bring many sons to glory. And that can mean the, you know, how, how it's glorious, how he changes our lives, like we heard this morning. But I'm sure it includes also bringing them to glory in terms of heaven and eternity and a new body and all those things. It was his joy to bring many sons to glory. But he says the captain of their salvation. That word captain for us guys and gals that like sports, we, we're very familiar with captains. You know, as a kid, sometimes you're chosen to be one of the two captains and you're picking people or you're, or you're on a team or you're, or you're a part of the people from which the captain will choose and you want to make sure that you're, you know, on the right team and you, the captain has a lot of authority. So we have captains on football teams. On, we have captains on every kind of team. But this is, and other translations translate this differently. Some translate it prince or originator or author or hero or champion. The word that I think best fits the Greek word is the word pioneer. Because it's made up of two words, arch 
and egos. And arch means highest and egos means leader. It's talking about someone that is a trailblazer, someone that goes on before someone and blazes a trail or paves the way. You know, you think of Christopher Columbus or these explorers that went out where no one had gone before. Now you're going to get into Star Trek. I could go there with that. Um, But, you know, just in terms of this earth now, let's stick with just this earth for now, okay? And, And these explorers go out and they blaze a trail. You think of someone that goes into a jungle and, and is the first one that goes through the jungle to kind of reach a destination and they're thinking in their mind, I need to make a way for other people behind me to, go, to travel. And it needs to, ma- it me- needs to be made in a way that's easy for them to travel. So they go with a big machete and they start hacking away, lopping off branches and bamboo and all this stuff and they blaze a trail. That's the picture here. He's the one who pioneered our salvation. He's the one that came before us and lived the perfect life that we could never live as an example to us and provide a salvation and to to, uh, be the first fruits of salvation with a new body, the first one with a glorified body. He's the one that blazed the trail. But all of that couldn't have happened unless he became human. He couldn't have accomplished that from heaven. He had to come and be human. And it says there at the end of verse 10 that he was made perfect through suffering. Now the question can, be, can come to our minds, well, he's God and he, he's eternal. He never had a beginning, so I thought he was already perfect. How can he be made perfect? Well, the word perfect there means it's communicating completion. That God, that God the Son, his mission and his whole, why he was sent to this, to this earth was fulfilled or completed through suffering. They would suffer and die in our place to be an example for us in terms of us taking up our cross daily and following him. And part of what he uses in our lives to make us more mature and more uh, useful in his hands, because he's aiming at us becoming mature disciples, is suffering. It's a theme you don't see a lot in Christian bookstores. You won't see the top 10 books with the theme of suffering, but it's pervasive all through the New Testament, all through the Bible. No one is brought into maturity without suffering. No one is pruned and broken and made useful for ministry, bearing fruit, unless there's, there's unmet expectations, unless there's suffering. And usually the context is persecution, but Paul experienced, the Apostle Paul experienced many times of difficulty and hardship that, that, were, that were not associated with persecution. But it's a way that God refines us and he molds us and he shapes us and we're more dependent upon him. We're less dependent upon ourselves through that. And so suffering is part of our portion as believers. And as we mature in our, our faith, we stop kicking against the goad, so to speak. We stop fighting against that and we cooperate with that more and more and more. We see that it's an expression of God's love towards us. We see that he doesn't waste any of it for his purposes in our lives. And he's very good at pruning us to, so that we bear more fruit. Now he gets to the benefits of all of this in verses 11 through 13. At least he begins with the benefits. And the first one is intimacy. He says in verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. We are one with Jesus. I love the sound of that, don't you? We are one with him. 
He who sanctifies, and the word sanctify means to set apart. He who sets us apart, and we, the ones that are set apart, are completely one. And that's, for, that's a good thing for us to think about in a new way, maybe, or be reminded of. He can't as- associate closer with you than he already has. There's no way that we can, by performance or, or our works or anything, get to be closer to him in terms of our relationship with him positionally. Positionally, we are 100% righteous in him. And it's so amazing that he wouldn't be ashamed. Would you be ashamed of you? <laughs> I would be ashamed to associate with me if I were God. And what's interesting about all of this is that these Jewish believers were contemplating being ashamed of Jesus. That, that, that changes everything when we look at the verse. They were contemplating being ashamed of him and rejecting and turning their face away from a relationship with him. And here this writer writes by the Spirit as loudly as he can, God's not ashamed of you. Even in your condition of contemplating, rejecting him or turning away from him or being ashamed of him, he still, not, he still loves you. And, and he cares for you intimately. So, all that he accomplished he, is for the purpose of being closely associated uh, with us. And he's not ashamed to call them, notice the last word of the verse, brethren. And that's important for us to see because he's going to quote some verses. And one of the verses he's going to quote, and I want us to turn there, um, is Psalm 22. But before you turn, let's read verse 12. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. So just like he always does, he's making a thesis statement and then he's backing it up with scripture. So let's go to Psalm 22. Hold your place here in Hebrews chapter 2. Psalm 22. This is a huge messianic scripture. Let's begin reading in verse 14. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look at me, they, they look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. I want to stop there. This is Jesus on the cross. There's more that you can learn about the cross in Psalm 22 in many ways than you can looking at the Gospels. The vivid description here of the cross is, and especially what's going on internally within the Lord Jesus on the cross, is very uh, proficient. And it's very helpful for us as we understand exactly what he went through, at least a, a part 
of knowing what he went through. We can't fully know, but this is a picture of the cross. And a lot of times on Good Friday, we'll read this psalm, and it's a great uh, scripture to help us understand what he went through. But what's not understood is kind of how the rest of the, 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 the psalm goes. Because at the end of verse 21, he says, you have answered me. And then here's our verse from Hebrews chapter 2 in verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel. And he he goes on to praise him further till the end of the psalm, which we won't read. But I want you to, to see that this little verse in verse 22 and and that last part of verse 21, something happens in there. And I I believe it has to do with the resurrection because here he is on the cross and he's calling out to the Father and then something changes at the end of verse 21. He says, you have answered me. You have answered me for deliverance. God, the Father did deliver him, but it was in a different way, obviously, uh, than we probably would have wanted to be delivered. You have answered me. And then he says, I will declare your name to my brethren. That's us. I will declare your name to my brethren. That's the same word in in, in Hebrews chapter 2. In the midst of the assembly. That's talking about believers. It's not talking about unbelievers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And then he goes on to praise him further. So one of the benefits, that's what we're looking at, one of the benefits of Jesus coming in human flesh and having the incarnation occur and him suffering for us, one of the benefits of that is we get to be closely associated with him. He's already told us that we're one with him. But now in this verse, he tells us that he calls us brethren. So the writer of the book of Hebrews is reminding these Jewish believers, and they'd be very familiar with this psalm, which was written a thousand years before Christ. That there's a biblical basis for God calling his people brethren because of Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection. Because he wants them to see there's a biblical basis for this intimacy, the benefit that we all get to enjoy because of his incarnation and because of his suffering. Now turn back to Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am, here am I, and the children whom God has given me. Children. There's another word that communicates intimacy. Again, we're going over the benefits of Jesus' incarnation and how he suffered and how he had to become human. He's talking about us being his children, which is another expression of intimacy. Again, he's, we're his brother. We're, we're brothers. with the Lord Jesus. He's a lot more, obviously, than that too, but we're his brother. But also, we're his children. We're the children of God, and he gives them a biblical basis to let them see that for themselves. He says there in verse 14 that death rendered the enemy of our souls inoperable by taking the sting out of death. Look with me there, verse 14. He says, insomuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. 
So he's already called us children in verse 13. But verse 14, he tells us that he had to become like his children in partaking of flesh and blood. When he says there at the middle of verse 14 that he had to be like his children having partaken flesh and blood, that's talking about the incarnation. That's talking about him becoming human. He had to become human, just like his children, in order to destroy the one that held the power of death, that is the devil. Now, we may think of the devil and think, well, it doesn't seem like he's destroyed. <laughs> you know, uh, I've been feeling the effects of that destroyed foe a, a lot. So I'm not sure how he could have destroyed him. And what he's talking about is he's talking about that the power of the enemy in our lives related to the believer over death in our lives has been rendered inoperable. That's, that's what it's talking about. It's still an enemy. Death is still an enemy, but it's a defeated enemy. But to the unbeliever, it's not a defeated enemy, and there's still a sting to death. The word death in the New Testament means separation. So when he says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is, eternal, is eternal life through Christ Jesus, when he says the wages of sin is death, he's not just talking about a physical death, although that's included. He's talking about a spiritual separation, not just a physical separation. So that's important for us to see. But he did render death inoperable in our lives or the fear of death. Those of us that have had his sacrifice put to our account and we're believers and we know him, the sting of death is removed. In another place, Paul says it. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? And the obvious answer is no. It's It's nowhere. We don't have that as believers. And then he says, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. These Jewish believers have already been released from their fear of, their fear of death and, and that being a bondage. And it is a bondage. The word fear there in verse 15 is the Greek word phobos. It's the word from which we get our word phobia. So it's the word phobia. I have a fear of snakes, or I have a fear of uh, exercise, or I have a fear of uh, traffic, or I have a fear. There's so many phobias. Those of you that are afraid of spiders, you don't want to watch movies about spiders because you'll, you'll have nightmares and so forth. But so many people have a fear of death that don't know the Lord. And in, they will try to stay ahead of death. They see death ahead of them. So what they do is some of them get into this kind of vehicle of, of health and exercise, as wonderful as that is, and it has its place, but they're trying to get in this vehicle and drive ahead of death so they can be looking at death in their rearview mirror instead of looking ahead to it. And they'll eat bran and they'll, eat, they'll, they'll run miles and miles and do all these things. And, and to be good stewards of our body is important. I, I'm totally a believer of that. But they can be paralyzed with fear. They don't want to think about fear. They don't want to go to funerals. I know people, I have family that don't want to go to funerals. They can't stand the thought of death because they don't know what's on the other side and they have no security in that anything that they will experience on the other side will be good. They have no idea. But for the Christian, God refers to death and sometimes as sleep. You remember that with the Lord Jesus in his public ministry. He would say, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And the disciples are looking around going, looks pretty dead to me. But no, she's sleeping and would raise her or the child from the dead or whatever. But we're just, 
we're just in this tent and we're just going to move. Death has been defeated for us. Death is just a butler that serves God, that ushers us to the next place. The sting of death has been removed for us, but that couldn't have happened unless Jesus became human and came to this earth and suffered on our behalf. That's one of the benefits of having him come, is that we don't have to be in bondage to the fear of death. You know, there's believers that, I mean, we don't, we can be afraid of of dying. There's a difference between being afraid of dying and being afraid of death, because we think about sometimes the manner in which we would die. You know, I think of, okay, it's probably going to be piranhas, or it's going to be something horrible, you know, and we just think of these horrible ways to die. And no one wants to die, go through the process of dying. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just death in, in general, where you're going to be and what's going to happen to you after uh, you die. Of course, we're concerned about our loved ones that we leave behind and so forth, but not for ourselves as believers. We, we graduate. <laughs> you know, we have our home going. We go home to be with the Lord. And, and so he's taking care of that fear because of the fact that Jesus came. Verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Now, this would ring a bell in their mind. This would be very familiar to them. When they see those three words, seed of Abraham, that meant so much to them that doesn't really have much to say to us as Gentiles, apart from the scriptures. But to them, the seed of Abraham made everything. They were the seed of Abraham. They were the physical descendants of Abraham. And, and, but that's not what he's getting at there in verse 16. We know from scripture that the true sons of Abraham are sons because of their faith. Abraham, his, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't based on his performance. It was based on his faith. And we're told in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Are you Christ this morning? Yes? Can't hear you. Yes, if you know Christ, you are Christ. And if that is so, then you have, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He also said it in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. He said, therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Father Abraham is a true expression that we can say, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you're in Christ. Right before he said that in Romans, he said all are, or in Galatians rather, we're, there's neither Jew nor Greek or male or female. We're all one in Christ. And so because of that, uh, we are of the seed of Abraham. But he says he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to us. So he helps us. But that couldn't have happened unless Jesus came in human flesh and suffered the way that he suffered. And then he gets further to the benefits in verse 17. He says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. In other words, become human. Again, he's continuing this theme of the importance of him becoming human, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, this isn't one other thing that would be very familiar to them, the high priest. Today, people don't really think of the high priest. They think of maybe priests and other religions, but they don't think of the high priest in Judaism. But they would be very familiar with it. The high priest would represent the people to God, and the priest would represent God to the people. And this high priest had the, the, the tribes of Israel on his breastplate and on his shoulders, represented him having the tribes close to his heart. It represented carrying the weight of the tribes on his shoulders and the, the huge responsibility of being the, the lead worshiper in, in, in the, among the, the, the Jewish people and so forth. But that's what a priest is. He represents God to the people and represents people to God. That's what a priest is. And so he's going to get into, we're going to see next week, he's going to get into how Jesus is better than Moses. But Moses was kind of like a high priest in a sense. I mean, he represented, he was an intercessor. He, he represented God to the people and people to God. He wasn't perfect in that calling, but he, he was very good in that calling. But he, he failed at one point. God told him to strike the rock and water would come out, and water came out. And then about 40 years later, he told him to speak to the rock, but he was frustrated with the people of God, and he struck the rock. And nothing happened the first time. Can you imagine a video of that? Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, and then he strike, struck it again, and water did come out. And then because of that act, God forbade him from ever going into the promised land during that time. The Mount of Transfiguration, he was there. But at that time, he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. Why? Because he misrepresented God to the people. He represented that, he was that God was angry at the people, and God wasn't angry at the people. We have to be careful how we misrepresent or how we represent God. God isn't angry at people. He loves people. But it's a very big deal to, to rightly represent uh, God to this world and who we're called to serve and reach out to as in being salt and light. Now notice he says, in all things there. In all things he had to be made like his brethren. In every way. In every way he, he went through what we go through. He had to be made in every way, in all things, like his brethren. There's that word again, brethren. We're, we're a, he's our brother. We're in the, the, the family of God. And we're also sons. But why? Why did God have to be made in all things like his Brethren, so he could be a merciful and high priest, we're told. To, to, to be able to empathize with us. That was very important. And we'll get to that further in a moment. But he also says for propitiation. What is that word? That's a fancy theological word. It means a satisfied payment. Sometimes when I'm preaching the gospel, I'll, I'll say the, the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. Because our, when Jesus was on the cross, our sins was laid upon him. And the wrath that we deserved collectively of all mankind, from Adam all the way into people that haven't even been born yet, and the sins that they'll commit, all of that collective wrath and the expression of it had to be poured out on, on Jesus. We're told in Isaiah chapter 53 that it pleased him to bruise him. And it was his son. He loved him. Of course, it caused a lot of pain, but it pleased him because of what it would accomplish. Very important for us. To see. So that propitiation pertaining to God, that could only happen if he came as a human. 
if he came as a man and he suffered. So he's saying more and more benefits of him coming in human flesh. But lastly, in verse 18, he gets to the last benefit of Jesus becoming human. For in that, he himself has suffered, being tempted, and he's able to aid those who are tempted. The word aid there in verse 18 is a different Greek word from the word aid in verse 16. And the word for aid here in verse 18 has a lot of empathy associated with it and a lot of compassion and a lot of coming to someone. It's like when someone breaks down on the side of the road, you know, and it's raining and it's in the middle of the night and they're totally vulnerable and they're away from everybody. They, they, you come to their aid, but you come to their aid in a way that's like a, a, a paramedic. You're coming just to help them, to rescue them. That's the sense. It's not just to, to assist in, a, in, a, in an aloof, distant way. It's to come with a deep compassion and empathy. And that's what he's trying to communicate. When we're tempted, Jesus gives us a way of escape. We're told that in Scripture. He gives us a way of escape. And he does so because he knows what it's like to be tempted. We're told in the beginning of Matthew, the Holy Spirit drew him away to be tempted. And he was there. He didn't eat or drink. And, and it was an extended period of time. And he didn't have a sinful nature, but he was tempted. And the enemy threw everything that he possibly could throw at him in that temptation. So when we are tempted, we know that Jesus, when we're calling out to that high priest, we know that uh, he knows what we are, are going through. He's going to talk a lot about being a high priest. He's going to talk about it 16 times in this book. No other epistle deals with Jesus being our high priest. We're told 39 times in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, we're told of a high priest, but it's that man who served that purpose in that time, the Jewish high priest. Only this epistle deals with Jesus being our high priest, but he comes to our aid, and he has empathy, and he cares deeply. If you're being tempted, he always gives us a way of escape, and he does that based from his heart. And if you're struggling in anything, Jesus went through everything that we could possibly imagine and more. And he comes to us and says, I know what you're going through. You ever try to help somebody when they're going through a difficult time? And you have no frame of reference. You have no way to understand what they're going through. And you say, I can't possibly understand what you're going through. But God does. But when we've gone through something, and we're told this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that we are to comfort those with the comfort with which we are comforted. When we, when we go through something difficult and we go through the same thing someone's going through, it matters to them when we say, I know what you're experiencing. I remember when our, when our brother Brian Bagoon went on to be with the Lord. I sat down with every one of his five children and I, I shared, I know, what, I know what it's like to lose a dad. I went through that. I lost a dad. I know what it's like to be without any good role model in the home. I know what it's like to not have that loving father there. And it meant something to those kids. And I'm sure it still does to, today. But we go through so many different things. And sometimes when we're going through trials, we forget that God's gonna, he's not going to waste any of that for his purposes that there may be so many people that benefit after we're on the other side of this trial. And we can talk about God's faithfulness and how he's been so faithful to help us through every single part of what we've gone through. And we can encourage them and say, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to go through 
what you're going through. I'd like to close by reading a story about Jesus being able to empathize with what we go through as our high priest. And it goes like this. It's anonymous. No one knows what, who, who came up with this. But listen to this. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Some of the groups near the front talked heartedly or heatedly, not with, crin- not with cringing shame before God's throne, but with embittered belligerence. How can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a brunette, jerking back a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, and death. In another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded, showing the rope burns. Lynched for no crime, but because I was black. We've suffocated in slave ships. We've wrenched from loved ones and, and toiled till only death gave release. Hundreds of such groups were visible across the plain. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was, they all seemed to agree, able to live in heaven where all is sweetness and light without weeping, fear, hunger, or hatred. Indeed, what does God know about man? What does he know about being forced to endure the trials of life? After all, God leads a pretty sheltered life. So each group sent out a leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. There was a Jew, there was a black man, there was an untouchable from India, a person who was illegitimate, a person from Hiroshima, and others who had tasted life's bitterest dregs. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was simple. Before God would be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to life on earth as a man. But because he was God, they set certain safeguards to be sure he would not use his divine powers to help himself. Let him live as a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be questioned. Let him champion a cause so just but so radical it brings upon him the hate, condemnation, and destructive attacks of political and religious authorities. Let him be indicted on false charges, tried before a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him see what it is to be terribly alone and and completely abandoned by every living being. Let him be tortured and let him die. And let his death be humiliating. Let it take place beside common criminals while he is jeered at, mocked, and spit on. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of of approval went up from the great throng of people. But suddenly, after the last one had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No, No one moved. For suddenly, all recognized the stark reality. God had already served his sentence. So no matter what we go through, He's there intimately knowing what it's like. So what are you going through this morning? What are you experiencing? What trial are you going through? God wants to comfort you this morning. He knows what it's like to go through what you're going through. He's experienced it. He's a faithful high priest. He wants to hear everything that you have to say from your heart about how difficult and how hard it is. And he wants to give you the grace and the mercy and the power to stand. We're told in scripture to stand as believers. And after we've done all to stand, stand therefore, we're told. To stand, he wants to give us that grace to stand under that difficulty, to get our strength and our power from him to do whatever he's called us to do. He cares so much about us 
But none of that could have happened unless he came as a human. And that's what he wants to burn deep into our hearts this morning. He had to be human, and he did it because he loved us, and he, we needed it to happen in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you're our faithful high priest. We know that we haven't even come close to scratching the surface of what all that means in this book. But you've begun helping us to see that. And I pray for anyone here that's hurting, that's, that's going through a trial and is discouraged. I pray for those that are among our family that aren't even here today, who may be listening to this later or, or maybe not. We just pray for them now. We pray that you would strengthen them and encourage them. We thank you that you're closer than anyone could possibly be. We're grateful that the Holy of Holies is inside of us, Lord. And that can only happen because of your grace. So lift the head of your people this morning and encourage them. And help us, Lord, to not be sidetracked or distracted or discouraged when trials come. Help us to embrace them and lean upon you heavily so that you can use them for your glory in our lives and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.